Cool. All right. Cool. Sweet. 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 So I'll get to start. I'll introduce us, Demetrius, and then we'll we'll kind of get started. Um, does that sound good? Awesome. All right, guys. Well, welcome everyone. We want to welcome you guys to another coffee session. I am David Aponte, one of the hosts, and we have Demetrius. Uh, and we, have a very, <laughs> we have a very special guest today. Uh, we're going to introduce him in a second, but before we get into that, uh, what, let me just preface kind of some of the things we're going to talk about today. So we have Luigi, uh, who has he runs MLM Production. We're going to talk about what that is, uh, how we got started doing that. Uh, but we're also going to take some community questions. The MLOps community started asked us to ask uh, a bunch of questions, so that's going to be the format today. We're going to uh, basically do like a Q&A and then just chop it up through some of those questions. Uh, Demetrius, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, so I will just say this. I have pinched myself a few times and it looks like I am not dreaming. This is actually happening. We have Mr. ML in production himself with us. Yeah. And I feel so honored to be able to talk to him. We were just literally talking about how he feels like he is not a thought leader in this space. He just has a lot of information because he's already done it and it can be helpful for others. And so I really appreciate the way that you look at things, Luigi. It's obvious that you're a super humble dude and I'm excited to talk to you about all of these questions that we have. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. I'm excited to answer some of these questions. Uh, I'm humbled and flattered. Uh, I don't think I deserve this much uh, praise this early in the morning here in San Diego, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's not a bad way to start my day. Awesome. Well, let me introduce you, Luigi. So Luigi Petruno, uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, I love no, the way perfect. that you've, uh, you've introduced yourself. A man whose goal is to help data scientists, ML engineers, and AI product managers build and operate machine learning systems in productions. That's what we're all about here. That's what we care about. We're very passionate about putting ML into production, about using it to create value. Uh, so yeah, we're very happy to have you here. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, Luigi? Yeah, sure. So uh, I do a lot of different things, but I guess why I'm why I'm here today is to talk about uh, what I do for work and for uh, some fun. I'm the director of data science at a company called 2U. 2U is a, an educational technology company. Uh, and what I do there is lead out the team of data scientists. Um, and we work closely with ML engineers and AI product managers to build out uh, operational products that the company relies on that are powered by machine learning and data science. Uh, but on the side or at night, I guess what I've become known for is running the blog um, ML in production that I started about two years ago. Um, and that project was started mainly because I found that there was a, a severe shortage of information online on what it took to actually build products that people used uh, that were powered by machine learning and not just build classifiers or regressors on their laptops similar to a lot of online tutorials that you found. Um, so I've been running that blog for about two years now. I do a lot of writing there. Uh, I've gained a little bit of a fellowship and had some uh, fun posts uh, be shared across the internet. Uh, outside of that, I do a lot of different things. Surf, Muay Thai, MMA. Um, nice. You also yeah. have a newsletter that goes along with that. And I know there's many people that are in our community and subscribe to your newsletter. If you aren't subscribed to his newsletter already, I highly recommend you should getting on it. Yeah. Yeah. The blog actually started ML production actually just started as a newsletter. And that's the one piece that has been sort of uh, steady and current 
uh, throughout the entire time I've been running the blog. So started as a newsletter, started writing the blog, started doing a lot of other you know guest posts and whatnot. But the newsletter has uh, remained consistent throughout the past two years now. It's been incredibly helpful too for myself because I've read it actually a bunch of times. I'm subscribed to it myself, and we know a few other people. But I really love the the like the, one of the reasons why your newsletter stands out compared to others is, and we I think we've talked about this before in the past, Demetrius. But you know, there's a lot of like hello world toy examples, uh, but you really try to get to like the applied ML, you know, something that's actually going to be used by end users, right? And uh, I would love to talk about what got you started with focusing on that area versus, you know, because there's a lot of things you could have talked about algorithms, you know, there's like so many things that are going on in this space. What, what, why, why did you care so much about the applied aspect of that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I was building these systems in production and, you know, I had had a couple of jobs as a, you know, I, I kind of worked across the stack. I started out as a data engineer. So there I was working on building out ETLs and building out data validation tools. Then I got into an ML engineering position at this pretty interesting company called uh, Control Labs, doing uh, you know really applied machine learning on on sensor on high throughput sensor data, uh, and then I moved over to Two U where I was working on more like you know human generated sort of uh, less less sensor data and more like business type data as a data scientist modeling that data, and then across all of these experiences, I had touched on very important data issues. And what I found was that when building out systems that had some data science, had some learning component or some component that was based on information calculated from data, the algorithms took up almost no time of my work, right? Uh, of course, some of those positions weren't modeling focused, but as a data scientist, my position was modeling focused. And even there, the amount of time I spent thinking about which algorithm I should use paled in comparison to the amount of time I spent thinking about uh, data structures or how to query the data or how to set up pipelines that would uh, transform data and move it from one place to another or or post that how to actually deploy the thing so that other people can use it or and then how to monitor the thing because we're running a business and if something fails this can mean uh, lots of money goes down the drain so you know looking at how I was working and then comparing that to what the internet was talking about which was mostly algorithms or beginners content I found that there was this drastic misalignment, right? When I needed to Definitely. learn, when I needed to learn about how to do a particular thing, if I went online and just, you know, did a cursory glance through the top posts on, you know, popular uh, blog sites or popular newsletters, I found that it was very rare that I actually got information that was helpful to me. So I found that most people were focused, were highly optimizing and really overly focused on a five percent part of the problem, and almost nobody was talking about the ninety-five percent of the problem. So that's what sort of motivated me to talk about that 95% because that's what I spent most of my time doing and thinking about and nobody else was really talking about that. Man, that's awesome. That's, that, that's exactly my, my, uh, my experience. Uh, I spent most of my time having to do all the boring stuff, the operations stuff, but that's a big part of it. You know, the, the modeling is such a small component of that process. So um, another thing that you'd like to talk about, uh, you know, you know, with this applied ML aspect is best practices, things that actually worked well for you, right? Um, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about some of those best practices as at a high level, not necessarily those best practices, but how you started actually coming up with them? Because um, I think there's, so, for me at least, it's a bit difficult because there's so many things, everything's changing. How do you develop best practices in a mm. fast moving, uh, you know, industry? Sure. I think, you know, I'm very, 
much a believer in, uh, you know, do the simplest thing, figure out why that thing is not the right thing to do, and then improve on that. So I don't claim to have all the answers from the get go. But you know, I've seen things fail. Um, and I'm also a big fan of just, you know, researching and, and thinking through who would know the answers to these questions. So for example, with, you know, productionizing machine learning, there's a lot of startups today or young companies that are just getting started in, in machine learning. And uh, but there's also a couple of companies that have been doing it now for a couple of decades. Right. And the companies I think about are Microsoft and Google. And uh, the industries I think about are, are basically ad tech. Right. So if you look at ad tech, the entire, the entire reason why it's gotten, uh, it's generated the revenue that ad tech has generated is because they've gotten very good at harvesting data uh, and building systems around that data capture and building models on top of that captured data. So I think a lot of people, you know, have qualms with ad tech because of, you know, what the field does, try to target people to sell them stuff. And that's fine and all, but I try to sort of remove myself from that uh, sort of frame of mind and to just think about the systems that they've had to build to actually, you know, accomplish these goals. And I don't think there's really much of a better place. I don't think there's a better place you can look for, you can look at to find out best practices for, for building these systems. So for, you know, even today, what I like to do is just find out as many paper, find as many papers as I can from the companies that have built these systems, because they've already gone through such so many iterations to perfect their systems to be able to serve models at scale. Uh, the challenge is that many of these companies don't publish a lot about these systems because they're, you know, they're the main money makers at, at companies like Google, for instance. Another way of, of, of finding these best practices is that these companies have had to build internal systems to accomplish their goals. And some of these companies are also cloud service providers like AWS and Google. So they've had to bake in some of these best practices into these systems that they've then sold as services. So I like to study these systems and sort of learn uh, from the decisions made in building these systems and apply them to the systems that I build. So for oh, example, you know, SageMaker is one of these systems. Um, you know, I, I put out this course on SageMaker and a large part of the reason why I put out that course is because I spent just a bunch of time studying how SageMaker works because I wanted to learn more about, you know, what kinds of lessons can I take from that system and apply them to the things that my team's building. So there's so many good points involved in what you just said. I mean, for one, it's how and where you're learning from. You're studying these different, these different tools. And I'm wondering, as you study them, do you feel like, because each tool is opinionated about mm -hmm. something, right? And it has its way of doing it. And so do you feel like there are better ways to do certain things? Or is it just like, okay, well, if you want to do it this style, then you have to fit into this mold. Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely, um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of subjectivity in data science and engineering in general. I think a lot of people might disagree with me there, but for all the talk about how sort of technical the field is, it's very subjective. And by subjective, I mean, you need to think about what your goals are at a high level. And then based on what there's your goals, and then there's also the context, like, your company also already has some sort of data infrastructure and your goal is to achieve some goals, but within the context of the engineering infrastructure that your company already has. So you may be constrained by, you know, my company is on AWS. So I have to use AWS, 
right? There's, there's not going to be any chance that I can use a, a GCP tool because that's just going to violate sort of the, you know, axioms of my company's uh, technology organization. So um, I think it's important to like, think about what the goals are, think about what your constraints are, and then to think through, again, how do I get to shipping something as quickly and responsibly as possible? And those, there's a lot of constraints there that I think can really guide you into figuring out, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? Yeah. And it's so interesting. Like you talked about reading these papers that come from these big companies that are basically putting things out there for the rest of us and saying, Hey, here's how we're seeing the space right now. And David and I just got done with a, an epic four part coffee session where we analyzed the Google paper on continuous training. Mm -hmm. And I will say that that for me was super informative just to look at how are they seeing this? How do they think about these, these different problems? And now I feel like I understand so much more because you get to see beyond your veil, right. right? Like if you're just working with one thing every day and the same problem sets and the same like constraints, then it's really hard to break outside of that. But when you read a paper from Google who has a completely different vision, I think it gives you a much better perspective on how others are, are looking at the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I started the newsletter was because I was reading many articles and blog posts just on my own because I need to solve these problems and I need to, you know, learn from other people who had solved these problems. And then at one point, and I was sharing a lot of these articles I was reading with people that I worked with. So I would, you know, almost constantly be sending them links. And then one day I was like, why am I just sending people? Why is my topology just one to many with me just sending people sort of things one by one? Why don't I just set up an email? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, why don't I just set up like a blast email list and just send them to everybody? I'm already reading these things. Um, and in fact, if I devote myself to sending out this newsletter, I can't sort of uh, not read these things because then I'll embarrass myself uh, on a given week yeah. by not sending out the five <laughs> newsletter, the, the five articles. So, you know, my, my the newsletter was really born out of something I was already doing, which was reading as many resources as I could to learn how to solve these problems and to learn from the experiences of engineers and data scientists at these companies that were, you know, really tackling these problems at scale. I just want to say, I really appreciate how entrepreneurial you are. Uh, I know that you talked about in the article, uh, why you started MLM production, that you had a little itch there, but it really, it really shows, you know, you're looking at like the space, what, what can be better? You know, what can, there's a, there's a need there. How can I solve that need? Um, And I love how you do it from a place of where you're already at. Like you're, I'm already doing this. How can I apply that? How can I generalize that? And I feel like that's a really good place to start when you, when you're in this sort of space, trying to do your own thing is what are you already doing and how can you leverage that uh, in some way, right? If, if you're doing, uh, a lot of MLF stuff at work, then maybe, you know, if you're reading all this content, summarize that to help yourself learn it, but also that could be useful for other people. So I like how, how natural, you know, this, this process has been for you. And it really, I, I think it goes to show that you definitely have a very entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I don't want to take too much credit. I think it's easier to craft the narrative looking backwards. There's definitely, um, yeah. you know, there's, uh, there were definitely a lot of, you know, challenging decisions made during the process. But yeah, I, I sought out to leverage what I was, you know, a little bit of what I was already doing. And um, I think that's actually a good lesson for I think a lot of people out there 
is a lot some people reach out to me and ask, oh, you know, how do you how do you keep up with keep with putting out the newsletter or 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 writing on the blog or you know, how do I get started in something like this? And I think the best advice is always to just take whatever you're doing and add just one more thing. Um, and then just do that for a while. Um, and then after a while, that one more thing becomes a part of what you do. And then you can add one more thing to that. And then eventually that snowballs. Sorry, right, I was reading these articles. So my one more thing was uh, send out these articles to people and maybe add like yeah. a paragraph of writing. And that was really hard for a while because I had to develop the discipline to do that consistently. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah. and then after a while that became sort of like, I didn't have to think about it anymore. And then I was like, Oh, let me put out a blog post. And then that was really challenging for a while. Uh, and then just snowballed from there. The power of habit. And then yep. I, I love that a lot of great, a lot of, you've said a lot of great things that I, I wish we could kind of dive into, but for the sake of time and, and uh, <laughs> definitely to get to what our community wants, we have some questions for you. Sure. We kind of started with the first one. Uh, which is where do you learn from some favorite resources? Now you mentioned, you know, Google, um, you know, looking at some of these production products like, you know, SageMaker and just thinking through like, all right, how, do, how does, what can I learn from this and how can I apply it to my day to day? Um, are there any other resources that are some favorites? I don't know who asked this, but uh, definitely, yeah, let's look anything else that we could add there. Yeah, so I would say I'm pretty, I'm, I'm fairly self-taught in a lot of these things. And uh, you know, I read a lot of, I listen to a lot of talks, I read a lot of papers, but beyond just the passive activity of doing that, I really try to, when possible, sort of construct the systems, at least just in my head that I'm reading about and to think through just overall architecture, like how would this be possible? So I remember starting to do this with uh, reading blog posts from Uber. Uber has a lot of blog posts on, on machine learning and data science. And I remember reading you know, their Michelangelo post and the Michelangelo post, I, I think I focused a little bit less on the system and more on the application use case, which was uh, estimated time to delivery for their uh, Uber Eats service. And, you know, they, they talked about a couple of features that they have in these models. And I remember just thinking through, oh, okay, well, you know, some of these features are going to come from just like historical data sets. Uh, some of these features can be generated from sort of uh, data that's in the incoming request directly from the user. So that's available right away. So some of this data is sort of historical. It needs to be sort of, you know, in the data comes from the data warehouse. So how, how do we build services to sort of, uh, you know, make these features available at runtime for a model? Some of them are already available at runtime. What kind of engineering decisions would I have to make in order to make that possible? How would we monitor that system once it was deployed? You know, what kind of feedback would we want to collect? Do we want to collect the exact sort of time at which the food was delivered? Because then we have some signal to be able to sort of reverse engineer what the actuals were and then compare them and see, okay, when was the model performing well? Was it not performing well? So beyond, you know, reading these blog posts, but then thinking through, you know, how would I build the system myself? You don't actually have to build a system yourself, right? I mean, it took Uber like hundreds of engineers many years to, to build uh, their system, but just being able to sort of fill in the gaps as much as possible and thinking through where you really have no idea how they did certain things. And maybe then, you know, going out and reading some blog posts, looking for some books specifically on those areas. Um, I pride myself more on being much more of a generalist than a specialist, right? I think I get, I, I have a little OCD or something where once I get too specialized, I just start losing focus completely and I have to change topics. So I, I you know, I tend to think a little bit about the modeling aspect, tend to think a little bit about the data engineering aspect. 
And uh, that's, I think that's how I do a lot of my learning is just to think through what's already out there and how I would sort of build out myself. Yeah. And your, your learning process is very similar to mine. It's like you go, you just go on these tangents, right? You see, all right, I don't really understand that. All right, let me look something up about that. Let me figure that out. Or I like that. And, and I really, I think what you just said, even going back about just the, the, the activity of like actually trying to construct some of these systems or think through how some of these things are done. That's very useful. It's a, it's like, yeah. a, I think, a, you know, especially if you're thinking about production level systems, you know, they're often very complicated, a lot of moving parts. And typically it's going to be running in like a distributed environment. So it's worthwhile thinking through something that big, you know, I think it definitely yeah. makes a difference in your day to day too, especially if you're yeah. anyways, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Demetrius, how about you take the next one? Yeah, I got one here from, another community member and this one i think there's two ways that i interpreted this question there's so the question is are there any companies in your mind that are doing ml ops in a like very very excellent way and i looked at it i i also kind of wanted to tag on a piece which is how I first understood this. And it was like, okay, so you have companies like a, maybe there's a bank that's doing ML ops like really well, right? And you've heard about them or you've seen some of the stuff that they put out and you go, wow. Like you, or maybe it's Uber, like you were just talking about. You're like, wow, they're doing stuff really well. But then I'm also wondering, are there any like tools that you've seen? Um, like you mentioned SageMaker earlier. Are there any tools that you're looking at? And it's like, wow, this, this is pushing the envelope for ML ops. This is doing it in a really nice way. Sure. So I think to answer your sort of first interpretation of the question, I'd say, you know, again, companies like Google, Amazon, Netflix, Stitch Fix, the companies, uh, and these are companies that are more, you know, they've had to solve the ML ops piece was just a, a one part of solving their real problem for google their real problem was you know serving ads for microsoft's sort of similar for their bing their bing search system for stitch fix you know it was personalizing uh clothing recommendations for netflix it was personalizing their video recommendations so these companies were really just trying to solve what i would say like vertical problems within their verticals or amazon you know recommending anything and in so doing and having to solve these problems for people at scale, they naturally came across the problems that sort of MLOps has developed to solve, right? So they were, the way I tend to think of it is they were really driven by solving a particular problem. And in order to solve their, at some point in order to solve this problem, that meant developing the tools and methodologies of what we're referring to as MLOps. So those companies had to develop those solutions um, so I think, I think that's the sort of the best companies that you can look at whenever, you know, if you can absorb whatever those companies try to put out, uh, about how they've solved those problems. And I think, again, you're, you're not going to find sort of better resources to learn these things because mm. the solutions have been motivated by real challenges that the companies have faced. Whereas if you're, you know, one person thinking about just ML ops as a sort of buzzword, you may not be that well situated to identify what the actual bottlenecks and challenges are. So I think learning from right. these companies is uh, efficient because they've had to solve the problems that they've actually had rather than problems that they think they might have. Are there any 
curveballs in there that you're like, ooh, they're actually doing it and you wouldn't expect them to be doing something? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it might be a little hard for me to think of a company off the top of my head right now, but I know that I've read plenty. Oh, you know, I, um, I was reading, there were really some, some really great blog posts from Dropbox mm. on, on, um, on solving their problems. And I was really surprised by this, not because I didn't think of Dropbox as a, I didn't think, I knew, I knew Dropbox was a great technology company, but I didn't really think about them as a machine learning company. And then I read a bunch of blog posts from them that were really beautifully written because I like how they organized the content starting from their, what their product problem was and then diving into how they sort of first solved the problem in a, sort of really with simple heuristics or with simple statistics. And then they iterated on their solutions and built more complexity into their systems. Yeah. And they, you know, they really touched the entire sort of uh, spectrum of what it takes to build a machine learning product. So I think Dropbox is a great example of uh, something that stands out to me that I wouldn't have thought of as an ML company, but they've been doing, at least they've been publishing and, and claiming that they're doing some great ML work. <laughs> I like that you, you preface that with claiming that they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think there's often large discrepancies between like the marketing collateral and what's actually happening. Uh, and I don't think that's sort of, uh, malignant. I just think that's just how it happens at times. Mm -hmm. So what about that second part? Uh, are there any tools that you're like, Ooh, this is doing something right. Yeah. You know, the tools question is, one that often comes up and I try not to be too opinionated with tools, at least when I'm like talking publicly, because I'm not trying to endorse anybody or, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, expose affiliations that I have or, or do not have. Um, I, I, I will say, yeah, and I can say at least from SageMaker, cause I'm, 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 I have a course on it. Right. So, uh, if, if any, at least I, people can just say I'm pushing my course rather than say I'm pushing some vendor. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I find the, I find the way they built that system. There's a lot of awesome stuff there for you to learn that, um, and for, for you to learn and for you to like be able to get off the ground really, uh, sort of simply and easily. Um, for instance, just one thing that's quite simple, but I think it's, it's, it's great is if you, if you launch you know, a, an API that's serving a model, you can very easily set it up so that the SageMaker is just capturing all of the inputs and outputs from that model and just storing it to S3 so that later on you can just take a look at those inputs and outputs and understand how your model performed. You know, if there was drift over time, if, if you get ground truth signal, you can compare that ground truth signal to what your model is outputting. And I think that is uh, that's something that it took the industry a little bit of time to learn you know, to just, once your model is outputting something to save all of the features, all the inputs and to save the outputs. But once you have those things, you can do so much more. So there are a lot of nice lessons baked into the system that regardless of if you use SageMaker or not, I think there's a lot for you to learn from and apply to your own systems. But if you do wind up using SageMaker, I think it's a pretty nice solution that comes out of the box at this point. Hmm. Well, yeah. And then that, just begs the question of like, what are some more features, not necessarily in SageMaker, but that you've seen that you're like, woo, this really helps. Or this, you can, it, you can iterate on more things because this is now 
in my toolbox? Yeah, I would say that's a hard question to answer. Can you give me an example of uh, sort of something? What you said about the logging, like the inputs and outputs, I think that actually is, that's a really important one right there. Like I, I can't stress enough how, how many problems happen when you're not recording that and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you, you forget what is actually even going on. So I would even say things that like enable like good observability or traceability, maybe those sorts of things like that, that feature that you norm, it's not like the sexy thing, you know, but it actually right. is really helpful for, you know, like actually making sure that your process is running smoothly. So I don't know if, if, if you can't think of another one, that's fine. No, I think I think I think uh, thanks for the help there. I think that's a good point because actually just this week, you know, I ran into an issue with with one of my teams where we have this sort of production system that's used in real that's generating predictions in real time and those predictions are used in, in making decisions later on. And we had a bug that we couldn't diagnose for some period that we, we weren't able to diagnose for some period of time because we weren't logging certain parts of the actual stack. And it was only through, it was only because we were doing some data analysis on previous predictions for another project that we found some anomaly in the data. And then somebody went back and looked at the system and found this bug. And, you know, if we had been logging a particular part of the system and then doing some monitoring on top of what we were logging, we would have been able to tell right away. And, and what I mean by something as simple as, if we had been just monitoring the average output of this classifier over time, we would have seen like regression in, in this metric and we would have known right away that there was a problem, but we weren't doing that. And, and we found ourselves in a situation where we had this silent failure for some, I won't say how long, but a considerable amount of time. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because I had this, a similar situation, not a real time situation, but uh, I, re- I, I realized when I looked at the, the, the pickled artifacts or like the training artifact, and I saw that every model was doing cross validation had the same memory address. And I'm like, wait, why are they all the same? And I, and it, we didn't, we, I had to look into it because we do, we're doing some prediction analysis, looking at the predictions and realize that a lot of the predictions are the same. Mm-hmm. And we didn't log those those predictions. So we were just like trying to like go around figuring out what was going on. And if we had been logging, we would have found it earlier. But yeah, I, I've definitely been in that situation. A little embarrassing, but yeah. This leads me to actually uh, one of the next community questions, if you don't mind. Um, sure. It was about the do's and don'ts of ML ops. I think that's a really big question. Um, so maybe just at a high level, you don't have to you know go too deep into that, but at a high level, what are some maybe the things that are fresh in your mind, some do's and don'ts of ML ops? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a pretty broad, broad general question. But I would say, you know, do log everything, you know, do monitor your models. Uh, because, and I, you know, the more autom- you know, do automate as much as possible, I think is an important one. Because the more you leave to sort of manual analysis, the more chances you have of missing things. Um, you know, do automate your deployments as much as possible and tag the models that you're using, uh, the versions of those models that you're using, right? Because at some point in the future, you're going to need to have to go back and you'll want to be able to refer to the exact model that issued a particular prediction. Uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's a pretty important one. It's a good uh, one. Yeah, I would say do sort of store your training sets. <laughs> You know, do store your validation and test sets. Uh, 
Um, I think I think that's a good list of dues. Some of them might sound obvious to people, but I think the fundamentals are no. Those are excellent. I would say to be you could you could do a lot of of good with those things right there. If you're logging things, you can find things a little bit quicker. If you're monitoring, you're keeping track of actually what's going on, right? If you're automating now, the automating one is actually an interesting one because we we went through a Google paper and that was like one of the presuppositions that Google really like. I think is is saying is a best practice is automating as much as possible. Yeah. But we've had some pushback in the community, good pushback about why it's not always it doesn't always make sense to automate some of those processes. And I know even at my own company at Benevolent, where we're doing drug discovery, it's a bit tricky to automate some of those things like sometimes manual work is actually really important uh, because of the nature of the domain. So sure. I, even though that's a great point, because it does lead to less mistakes, you know, um, I do think that, yeah, some of these things are, are really helpful for just helping you move, you know, make progress. Cool. Yeah, I think on the on your your sort of pushback on automation, I think that's a good point. I will say sort of, and this is anything in life I, I try to think through, you want to do the thing manually first until to discover pitfalls and to discover issues until you feel confident enough that you can automate it. So you know, perhaps, perhaps at first you want to run the system manually, or you want to run the deployment manually, because you just aren't aware of all of the issues that can occur. But after you've done that for some amount of time, I think moving it to, you know, automating it is a better thing to do, because it'll, it'll just save you development time in the future. And if you're, you know, relatively confident in what you're doing, then automation is a good solution. But but sure, at first, you know, you don't want to jump directly to automating. Oh, that's such a good point too. How, if you do it manually too, you'll know the process much right. better. And then you're just taking out that potential for human error once right. you exactly. start to automate it. But you have a clear idea of the process. It's not like I'm just automating it and then leaving it into the hands of God to yeah. <laughs> figure out what's Yeah, I mean, even when, you're, even when you're building a model, right? The first thing you should try to do is look at the samples yourself and try to generate the prediction yourself. Can you do it? You know, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're not looking at some sort of very difficult to parse feature vector, like an image or something, uh, or, you know, even if you're looking at the image, but you're not looking at the feature vector itself, can you detect whatever it is you're trying to teach the model to detect? Because that'll give you some sort of, it's a manual process, right? Or when you're doing some error analysis, can you look at the, the features that your model misclassified and sort of figure out some patterns manually before you do some more automated thing, like run PCA on a bunch of the errors and, 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 and sort of class, you know, categorize them or something. So we're kind of getting down to the wire on time because David and I fanboyed out a little bit too much before we started recording. <laughs> But I think we're going to have to do some rapid fire on these last questions. There's a few right. more that I'd love to get Man, through. And some good ones too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if there's one that you feel like, let's take more time on this one, feel free to. And then we may have to convince you to do a session two here. If Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, oh, man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so let's look at this one. What is your process? in identifying use cases that are suitable for machine learning as a solution? Like, and do you have a methodology around that? Sure. So uh, it starts with the business goal, right? If there is 
I have, I, I run a small team. Like we don't have like a hundred data scientists or ML, you know, ML engineers. We have a pretty sort of, you know, skeleton crew. So for me, the problems that we work on have to, I sort of see the ability for a, a product or solution to have a valuable impact as, as a, as a product of two factors. One is sort of the potential number of users, um, that the solution can benefit. And then the second part is the ability to actually uh, build a predictive model, right? Because if, if the model is not very accurate, um, I'd say, let's just use accuracy as like a broad term. I don't mean the technical sort of definition of accuracy. The more, the more maybe performant is a better word, the more performant. So it's the product of how performant your model can be times the amount of impact that a performant model can actually have. So because I'm working with a really small team, it's actually more important to work on problems that have the ability to actually impact more users or more parts of the business. Because then even if we build a model that's maybe not that performant, it can still have a positive business impact. Whereas if I work on a, a problem that has sort of a, a limited uh, scope of impact, even if we build a really performance model, we may not just have the impacts that you know, we'd like to have as a, as a data science team. So I always start with identifying with sort of ranking problems by the amount of impacts possible across the business. So that's part number one. And then after that, I look directly to um, how sort of developed are the data sets that we would like to use to actually build the models. Because if we don't have the data, we can't really build anything. Ooh. If we uh, have the data, but it's really like not clean, it's across different databases, need to sort of standardize and build some normalized data sets that's going to take up a bunch of time to do um, so i'd say i'd say like the maybe two primary factors i use and of course there are there are others in ranking problems and intaking problems would be uh, the amount of impact possible which is sometimes hard to measure but you know sometimes you can do and then also the how developed the data sets are that we would have to use to to build solutions out Damn, that's good. I think that's great. I just want to highlight that you, we talked about Google putting out great content. There's actually a course that Google has. It's free. It's called Introduction to Machine Learning Problem Framing. Yeah. Uh, I, a lot of the stuff that you said there is actually talked about there about how to actually frame an ML problem and whether it's worth actually using ML for that problem. Anyways, yep. but yeah. Awesome. All right. Next one. Thank you so much. That was really great stuff. And I'm going to, we're going to share some of these notes uh, for you guys. Uh, but the next one is what part of the ML and production process do you think people underestimate uh, the most? And a second sub question to that is what are the low hanging fruits that many people don't take advantage of? So what are the parts that people underestimate and where is their low hanging fruit that people actually miss out on? I guess they're kind of related. Yeah. I, th I think people underestimate on the ability to generate actual value without needing to build the most performant or complex model possible, right? If you're sort of uh, in academia or you're, you know, trying to win a Kaggle competition, you're really optimizing for the performance of your model. Whereas if you're in industry, the performance of your model, I'm, I'm, you know, it's the, the, the impact that, the performance of your model is definitely correlated to the impact that you'll have on the business, but you know, it may not be a direct like linear relationship. So you may not need, you know, 60% accuracy or 70% accuracy might actually be really valuable for your company, depending on what the use case is. And you're better off sort of getting it out the door and getting it into users' hands 
and and measuring um, you know your actual product metric or your business metric and and determining you know how how well you're doing there or running a you know a small a b test or something then you are going back to the lab and trying to squeeze out another 10% accuracy. Uh, now, of course, that's not in all cases, right? Sometimes you need to be very accurate. Sometimes you need to be very performant. You know, if you're building a self-driving car, for example, but if you're building, you know, a recommender system, you may, you may, you may not have to squeeze the last, you know, all of the juice out of the orange there. So um, I'd say, I'd say the ability to generate positive value uh, with sort of a model that may not be, may not seem that performant is an underestimated thing in the industry. Hmm. Yeah. I think that ties nicely into the last question you just answered too. They go hand in hand, right? Like figure out what the business value is and then get it out the door and then iterate on it and right. get, you know, this incredible model that has high accuracy, but first just try and see if something has impact right. and try to choose the one that is going to give you the most impact rather than this very narrow one. The, so the way to do it wrong, I guess, is by choosing a very narrow business case and trying to optimize for the model. Yeah, <laughs> I would say the, the way to do it wrong, um, and I know this because I've done this in the past, is to not understand the business problem as much as possible, not understand the potential uh, value, uh, and then to try to build the most complex thing right away. Uh, that is a pretty, um, I would say like a Kaggle competition. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say like, that's more often. And again, you know, I'm not accusing anybody. I've done this myself. So it's, it's sort of a natural thing for, I think data scientists and engineers to do is to want to just jump straight to the solution when most of the value you might be able to get with like an 80% solution. That's great. I think. We, we have one more. Have, yeah, we get one yeah, more, more and then one more, guys. All right. This is a good one. And I think and I think it actually captures a lot of the stuff that that um anyways. But the next one is what you've been in this space in MLM production, right? And it's been evolving over the last few years. Where do you think some of this stuff is headed? Um, and that's a very broad question. I've been asked that before. Uh, but I guess I'll leave it up to you. How do you want to interpret that? Uh, where do you think this industry is headed? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's clear that there are more and more tools coming out every day. I mean, just two years ago, if you just look at the situation two years ago, there were way fewer tools to do. Like deployment was challenging two years ago or three years ago, right? And now there are like, I don't know how, tens of companies that have emerged just around deployment and like maybe 40, 50 companies, I don't know. Um, You know, now sort of other things are starting to become a little bit more on vogue, like monitoring. There are a couple of companies doing monitoring now and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe six months, eight months ago, nine months ago, around there, like that wasn't even a thing. You know, there weren't that many companies doing this. At least there weren't that many companies publicized doing this. So I think there are going to be, you know, only more and more of these sort of tooling companies that emerge. I'm not really sure whether, you know, I I think some companies can get by with just using one tool, one platform tool that does everything. Other companies will need to sort of have a best in breed approach where they pick and choose different parts of the stack and, and outsource that to different services. I think that's only going to continue. So you'll, you'll, there'll be more and more commodity software available to do some of these common tasks. I don't think that's much of a, I don't think I'm being Nostradamus in making that sort of prediction. I just think that's how technology gets developed. I would say that there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of these vertical style companies 
that try to really solve problems within a narrow domain by building, uh, you know, ML powered products. So not tooling companies, right? Tooling companies sort of work across verticals, uh, but I'm talking about like specific uh, companies that solve companies that solve specific use cases, but use machine learning to solve those use cases. I think we're going to see more and more of those that are going to be enabled by all of these tooling companies that exist. Uh, but the real, the real bottleneck there is the domain knowledge. So you're going to need domain experts who understand the data sets and who understand the domain in order to make the modeling possible. But just like AWS made it much cheaper and easier to build, you know, online companies because you can use cloud software. I think these ML tooling companies are going to make it easier and easier to, to build ML powered products because you don't need to sort of bootstrap all the infrastructure. But what's, what's missing then is the serious domain knowledge to actually model out your problems. So if you're a domain expert, I think now is one of the best times possible to build sort of a, a company powered by you know, advanced analytics or machine learning because the tooling is there, whereas previously it wasn't available. But that domain knowledge, if you don't have that, you won't be able to build anything except sort of a generic type solution. So the, the more domain experts you can get in a room, uh, sort of the the better a vertical solution that you can build. Fascinating, man. man. Yeah. Well, dude, you said so so many awesome things you talked about. Uh, I wish we had more time, uh, Luigi. It was such a pleasure, and and maybe we can summarize some of the things. Uh, we didn't get to talk a lot more about this, but I, it was definitely hinted at, and a lot of the things you said about starting simple uh, and the importance of iterate, iteration. Right. That's a big. It seems like that's a, a very important thing. It's a good practice. Um, it's something I also recommend, start simple, then work your way up. Um, but overall, I think we have a lot more that we'd love to talk about in the future, guys. We may have another episode, but yeah, we we'll really appreciate it to be continued. Yeah, we, we really do appreciate you taking out the time to speak with us to answer some of our community uh, questions. Uh, I had a blast. Um, and yeah, that's all. Demetrius, anything if, else? Yeah, well, obviously, there's going to be more questions now after people watch this. So throw them in the comments or reach out to us on Slack, put them in the original thread or just throw them in general and we'll keep this rolling for part two. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, if you haven't already, sign up for the newsletter. You can hear you me talk much more. Uh, I can, <laughs> I'll can. i talk go. your ear off about these things. <laughs> yeah, awesome. and the blog. Check out Luigi's blog and yeah. the course on SageMaker. If anybody is using SageMaker and you want to get deeper, into it check out his course on that and i know you've done you're also doing stuff with uh twimmel yeah so i, I gave it i gave a talk at twimmel con two years ago on a kubernetes based system that I, my team built um and we actually partnered on the SageMaker course so they um we offered it sort of um we launched it to the twimmel community um it was sort of it's you know it, it's independent of twimmel but uh we worked together to uh, offer the content to the Twimmel community. So I was super pumped about that. They have nice. a, like a nice sized community. Right on. Well, thank you again. And thanks everybody for listening. We will see you all later for the next one. All right. Take care, guys. <laughs>